0: Well this morning we're going to be looking at um, the last part of First Timothy, Timothy chapter 6 and um, what Steve prayed for on our behalf is that we might know our purpose on earth and there are many purposes but you're going to be all summed up and that is to glorify him and we have thought about that but this morning It'll be in one particular area, our purpose with what we do with what the Lord has entrusted to us. And uh, that's the title of my sermon, What Shall We Do With Our Earthly Treasures? And we see this in the last section of First uh, Timothy chapter 6. What we'll do is we'll read right through to the end of 21 and uh, we'll be- begin our exposition in verse 17. Verse 17, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. And may God add a blessing uh, to his precious word this morning. Well, as I said, we come into the closing part of Timothy's letter and what we see here is two remaining issues that Paul raises with his son in the faith, Timothy. And we will also see that both of these issues have to do with handling treasure or our stewardship of what God has entrusted to us as his people and these issues are vital how we handle these issues are vital because how we as believers handle these two treasures that we've read of this morning is a measure of our spirituality and our love and our devotion to Christ And just in case you think that this does not include you and you see the picture of money up there and it's to do with treasure, wow, that's way out of my league. I'm not rich. I'm not well off. Just in case you're thinking like that, please understand that every child of God is his steward and will be held accountable, each one of us, as to what the Lord has given to us. And in this section, in verses 17 to 19, which will claim our attention this morning, we see that the first of these two treasures is all about being good stewards of our material possessions. As we saw last week, there is a passive aspect of being a child of God. A passive aspect. For God, as we know, has done His salvific works His work of salvation, as we've remembered at this table this morning, he's done that work. There was nothing for us to add. We cannot add to our salvation. So there is a passive aspect to being a child of God. But we also saw that there was an active side of being a child of God. This is where we as believers, God's children, are to continue and to to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We saw that fleeing sin and pursuing Christ, that demands our active involvement, our participation, which is to flow out of a heart that is full of devotion and worship to the Lord. In other words, as the worship of God, which flows out passively from a full heart, as we drink in perhaps the, the vision of God and Christ that Paul gave us last week, that we read in prior verses, in verses 30 to 16, we are also to worship God actively. So it's kind of a passive worship this morning as we come before him and we're caught up into heaven, as it were, and we've seen the God of creation and the entire universe as we've thought of the great sacrifice at Calvary. And out of that, our hearts overflow with praise and song and thanks to God. We could call that passive, but we're also to worship God actively. And that is in the way that we conduct our lives. This means the believer's life is to be one of worship from the heart, which will involve will involve active duty. You see, worship and duty go together, folks. That's all there is to it. Worship and duty go together. Forget about just coming to church on Sunday, or every other week, or every third week, or whatever it might be. Worship and duty go together. But we often get it wrong. We often get that so wrong. Any duty springing from a worshiping heart, or not springing from a worshiping heart, any duty that we might perform, especially when it's doing good to others or or, or whatever, and or loving our wife as we should, etc., etc., and, and being submissive, to the, and coming to church and praying, and any duty that does not spring from a heart that's full of worship and devotion to Christ is nothing else than legalism. And God hates that. God hates that. It's kind of the the heart in another place and the actions pretending to worship God. The Lord Jesus joined both worship and duty when he said in Matthew chapter 4 verse 10, This is what he said, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. There are worship and duty put together. And so here in verses 17 and 19, we have a worshipful duty for those who are rich in this present world to heed. A worshipful duty is what we see here. Now please note that Paul has already raised the matter of earthly treasure. But that was in relation, if you will remember, to false teachers back in verses 5 and right through to verse 10 and it was there that Paul pointed out also the dangers and the devastating consequences of loving money or desiring to be rich and so if you think the pastor, your pastor here is going oh here he is, another sermon about money and about riches Uh, don't blame me, I'm just the one that passes on what the Spirit of God had Paul write down, right? So he brings it up again, and so because he brought it up again, I'm bringing it up again in a different light uh, than Paul did last time. But here the Apostle Paul, what he does is he brings instructions to those who are already rich in the assembly. Last time he mentioned it it was in relation to false teachers and what motivated them. And, And the warning, don't get sucked in with their motivations. But here, it's to believers who were already wealthy, already rich in the assembly at Ephesus. Now, notice he does not denounce them. He does not condemn wealth or those who God has entrusted with wealth. He doesn't do that. So we can take it. It is not necessarily a sin to be wealthy. But in the same vein... Having a large bank account does not necessarily mean that God has blessed that person either. After all, there are many godly people who are absolutely dirt poor in this world. Goods, right? And there are many wicked people who are filthy rich. So here what Timothy is doing is he is called to address a certain group of people in the assembly and he says to Timothy instruct those who are rich in this present world. Now lest you think that this lets you off the hook please bear in mind this does not mean that you have to have a, a portfolio of properties to your name or that you drive around in the latest Mercedes-Benz or whatever it might be. Or that you have large cash reserves stashed here and there and everywhere. It doesn't mean that. You see, to, to be rich, to be rich here simply means this, to have more, listen to this, than the bare essentials. Like food and clothing and shelter. That's what it means here to be rich. It means to have a few extra dollars in your pocket every now and again. It means to have the means to spend money on those nice and pleasant non-essential things that we do all the time. And might I suggest because of our affluent society, because here we live in this wonderful land of the free of Australia, I'm suggesting that every single one of us would probably fit into this category of being rich in this present world, right? So, Paul here does not command all those who are rich to sell up and take a vow of poverty or anything like that, no. But what he does do is he gives instructions on how we are to view our wealth from God's perspective and how we are to handle it. And this includes seeing that there is a snare to avoid, a duty to achieve and an eternal investment to advance. Now, we'll go to that first point. First of all, we'll see that there is a snare to avoid, and we see this in verse uh, 17. Verse 17. There is a snare to avoid. What Paul does here, first of all, is he deals with the negative consequences of wealth by warning those who are rich. He warns those whom God has entrusted with wealth. And as I said before, we're all entrusted with certain measures of wealth, some more and some less. And he warns that those who are trusted with wealth, that this very blessing from God can also bring a curse, or I have put it, a trap that we need to avoid at all costs. And this is like a double warning, and what it does is highlights two temptations that will seduce undiscerning believers like a bird into a snare. And the first one is those who are rich, they're not to be conceited. This word "conceited," by the way, comes from a Greek word that means to think lofty or to have. An exalted opinion of oneself. Or if we want to put it in more colloquial terms that we would use, where a person is full of himself or herself. In other words, those who are rich in this present world need to understand that the wealth God has entrusted to them for his glory can very easily become the thing that ensnares us with conceit and superiority. And, folks, how true it is that being rich in material possessions so often brings with it a temptation to feel superior, right? Or to look down on those below us in the socioeconomic group, or, or maybe in the corporate ladder, or in the workplace. Being rich in this world goods goods, always brings with it the temptation to place oneself on a higher plane than those who are not so wealthy. But as believers, whether we're rich or poor, we're called to be what? Humble, humble in spirit. Jesus said this on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, Blessed are they who are humble or poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God, Matthew five. And the more wealthy the one one is, the more temptation to be conceited, to feel superior. The snare is ready, the trap is set. Folks, it's very difficult, very difficult for wealth and humility to go hand in hand. Very difficult. But Paul wanted the rich in the Ephesian assembly to avoid this snare that, that was rampant in the culture. It really was. He wanted them to be the opposite to conceited. He wanted them to be of, of a humble mind like we have in um, Philippians. So let me just read that verse, Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look on your own personal interests but also the interests of others. And then it goes on, have this attitude, in other words, this humble attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. Being humble was a foreign thing in Paul's day in Ephesus. Matter of fact, the word for humble or humility, um, some of us on our Thursday night Bible study have been thinking about this. The word for humility was never even, not even known in the Greek culture. It's more than likely Paul actually made this Greek word up for humility because to be humble was considered a weakness and a terrible plight. So the opposite was always promoted in that culture. And so the Ephesian believers would have understood how difficult it was for wealth and humility to go hand in hand and be one. And so being trusted with riches, like we all are to varying levels, it's not a bad thing in itself, you know. It's not a bad thing in itself. But with that comes a temptation to be conceited to think more highly of ourselves than we should. Paul commands us in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, for by, grace, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now the second warning that that Timothy, Paul gives Timothy is seen in the latter half of verse 17. And he gives this again as to the rich in this world. And he, Paul warns them there that they will be tempted to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. So not only will they be tempted to be conceited, but they'll be tempted to fix their hope on the riches that they amass to themselves. In other words, do not give in to this powerful temptation for its outcome is futile. It's a wasted hope. And we might say, Why? Because it's foolish to base your hope on the temporary wealth of this world at the expense of trusting in the eternal God. You see, folks, it's either one or the other. Jesus said in Matthew six twenty four, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And so this is where the trap, snare, the snare traps us. You see, accumulating wealth often demands an increasing hope and trust. You get that? The more money we make, it demands of us that we spend more attention on it, we spend more our time focusing on it, and we and we start being, and we begin to trust it and hope in it more and more. That's the kind of trust that needs and belongs only to God, folks, for the believer. Proverbs 11, 28 warns, he who trusts in riches will fall. And again, Proverbs 23, verse 4 and 5. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings and flying away like an eagle toward heaven. In other words, we're warned, it's foolish to place your hope in riches for they can be here today and gone tomorrow and one thing for sure we all know we cannot take it with us this is illustrated by the way in a parable that the Lord Jesus told in Luke chapter 12 and you'll know this parable well Jesus warned of this foolishness of trusting in riches and this is what Luke 12 says the land of a rich man produced plentifully and he thought to himself what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops. And he says, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store up all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So we can ask the question if we're not to trust or place our hope in riches, what are we to do? What are we to do? For all of us here who are wealthy, it fits into that bracket. Well, Paul gives the answer. Believers are to fix their hope on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Do you see that? You note know that? We're to fix our hope on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. I love that promise. It's a wonderful promise. It tells us that God provides far more wealth, far more security, far more peace of mind than any earthly investment that we could ever, ever make. You see, folks, God is not stingy. For what does it say? For He richly supplies us, that's His children with all things to enjoy there's the promise there is the divine guarantee that that, that will bring in an eternal dividend if we like and did you notice something else there we are to enjoy everything that God has entrusted to us so in other words God is not downing on those who have wealth, after all our wealth comes to us, it's given to us by God so if you're wealthy here this morning, and I've suggested that we all are to varying degrees, he's not doubting us of having that big bank account or whatever or whatever else it may be. Matter of fact, he's saying, I have not only given it to you and entrusted it to you, but I want you to enjoy it. Steve reminded us of this some time back when he was going through Ecclesiastes. for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. In other words, yes, there will be difficult times, but they will fade when he's taken up with all what God has given him. Where to enjoy it? It is true that the greatest joy that we can experience is when we bring glory to God, right? And in relation to our wealth, It is when we do not lay up for ourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroys, where thieves break in and steal, but when we lay up treasure for ourselves in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So you want to be happy in heart? Invest in God's kingdom not on earthly treasures. May we all know the joy of worshipping the Lord by firmly fixing our hope on God and with the wealth that he's entrusted to us, having its rightful place of submission to his eternal will. Second point I want to bring to your attention is there is a duty to achieve. We see this in verse 18. We can ask here, so why does God entrust us with any wealth at all? Wouldn't it be better for us to keep us all poverty stricken and so that, we would not have these testings and so forth. Now, What are we to do with all this wealth? What are we to do with what we have what God has entrusted us? How do we glorify God with what he's entrusted to us? These are good questions. Well, Paul tells us here, as he tells Timothy, he says, instruct those who are rich to do what? To do good. To be rich in good works. To be generous and ready to share. You see that? This answers Paul's Paul's is given in four stages here in verse 17. He first of all calls Timothy to instruct those who are rich to what? To do good. Now this may seem like a stock standard answer, a bit like when you answer ask a question in um, Sunday school, little little kids and and, um, and hands will go up and they say, oh Jesus or God or something like that to give an answer. Yeah, but uh, this here, do good, is not just simply an answer like that. Actually, this to do good is only used once, and it's here in the Old and the New Testament. And so, what it means is that the rich are to do what is naturally and vitally good. That is their rightful response to their wealth. It's a it's a quality of goodness here. It's a quality of goodness that's that's not motive motivated by putting on a show it's it's not a goodness that that uh, one might be taken up with with the attitude of well I've got to be seen to be doing it's not a goodness like that but it's a goodness that is honorable and excellent in its motivations and in its actions Simply put, the wealthy are to use their lives and their wealth to do genuinely good and honorable things. That's all there is to it. This is the responsibility of those who are rich, might I say, not only towards God, but it's as they are rich and do good towards those who are not rich, as when they are being rich toward God. And so all of us who are rich will be held accountable to our submission to this. We will it's an act of worshipful duty of doing good and it's the wealthy that are called to do this especially this is not saying that those of the poor are not to do good but often you will find that you go to other countries especially I remember it was Africa a couple of years ago and the goodness that dirt poor people were doing to one another was staggering The second aspect that the rich are to achieve is that they're not only to do good, but they're to be rich in good works. The sense is plain here. We're not to be stingy in whatever we put our hand to as we help others in the assembly. And the key word in this second stage is rich. And what this means is abounding or abundantly furnished. In other words, a giving, whatever it might be, is not be limited to... uh, That'll be enough to cover the cost. It's not to be limited to, oh, that'll be enough for them just to get by. To be rich in our good works is to give abundantly. It's, it's a giving that is well pressed down and overflowing and more than is initially needed. I like how MacArthur's commentary states it and please listen to this, believers' resources are to be used to support their families, chapter 5, verse 8. Especially needy widows, chapter 5, verse 4. The leaders of the church, chapter 5, verse 17. And any believer in need must be provided for, we have that in Acts, chapter 4, 34, 35. And all such sharing is not to be minimal, but fully covered but fully cover the need and more, Unquote. The third aspect of glorifying God with our wealth is that we are to be generous. This word simply means liberal or bountiful. Maybe a bit of a doubling up on the prior, but obviously it's important and it's inspired by God, and so we need to simply put our helping and giving to others in need. It's not to be selfish or in any way a tight-fisted and stingy. we're to have hearts of generosity where we give and, and the model we look to is is that of God. For after all, God was generous, wasn't He? He, he generally, generously moved toward us and, and not only that, but he, he richly moved toward us in Jesus Christ who for our sakes, by the way, Became poor that we, through his poverty, might be made rich. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. That's the model that we're to follow. Jesus just didn't give us enough to get by, he blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. He was abundant toward us. There's the model. Paul picks up on this same idea again in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 where he commends a church just like this. This church was called the Macedonian church and may well have been several churches in that Macedonian area. But this is what he said of them as he was telling the Corinthians. He was saying, hey, when it comes to giving, you want to have a look at the Macedonian church. And he says... For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. So what are we to do with our entrusted wealth? First of all, we're to do good with it. Secondly, we're to be rich in good works with it. And thirdly, we're to be generous towards those who need it. And finally, our fourth aspect we have to be ready to share. You See that? End of verse 18. And this has a whole lot more to do with attitude than our actual duty, by the way. In other words, being ready to share carries behind it the idea of, of a ready willingness to have fellowship with those in need using the wealth that God has entrusted to us. This is a whole lot more than saying, hi on Sundays, great to see you, or maybe, oh, I'm real sorry to hear that, I will pray for you, especially if we use that cliche for the reason, or a good reason, or, or a supposed good reason, so that we won't be engaged any further with them or have any further investment. It's a whole lot more than that. This is about a deep mutual care and concern that will have you going can I say the second mile, if necessary, for those in need of the church? Now, we all, including myself, understand and learn that there is a duty to achieve in using the wealth that the Lord has entrusted to us. Finally, there is an eternal investment to advance. We see this in verse 19. One of my sons and his wife back in New Zealand had reason to seek advice from a financial advisor a few weeks back regarding advancing their uh, property investment. Uh, And this was a wise move on their part as the advisor made them fully aware of the financial risk that was involved owing to a waning property market. And as I considered this, I could not help but think how wise this advisor had been, even though his investment forecast was a gloomy one to them, owing to the reality of the property market and what it's doing at at this present time. How wise was that advisor? And then again, I think, folks, we have before us investment advice that is eternally secure and stamped with God's guarantee. There is no doom and gloom in this investment forecast either, by the way. As a matter of fact, Paul tells believers who are rich that if they do good, if they be rich in good works, and if they, if they are generous, if they are ready to share, they are storing up for themselves a good foundation for the future. Do you see that? That's what they're doing. How's that for investment advice? This is a good, solid investment advice. There's nothing gloomy or doomy here. By the way, the word storing up in our text could be translated amassing a treasure. And the word foundation, it has the idea behind it of a fund, a bit like a retirement fund that some of us here are already drawing down on. But this stored treasure that is invested in heaven, it does not pay its full dividend in this short life that we have, of three score years and ten, plus, give or take, a few more, by God's grace. It does not pay its dividend here, except maybe there is a dividend of some court, the peace and the joy and the peace of mind of knowing that we're in the will of God. You see, those who lay up treasure in heaven are those who invest their lives and resources, be they small or be they great, in the hope of an eternal payout. That's what, it, that's what it's all about here. Revelation 22, verse 12. What does it say? I'll read it to you. Behold, I am coming quickly, says the Lord, and my reward is with me. You hear that? My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. That's to believers. Folks, those who invest the wealth that God has entrusted to them in the ways that we have looked at in our text today, they are the ones who show that they have taken hold of that which is life indeed, as our text says. And this life indeed here that we have in our text is eternal life, right? It's got to be. It's eternal life. Now, we all know that we have now eternal life. It's not something that we're going to get. The moment a person comes to Jesus Christ and is born again, they have eternal life. But the question is, do we live in the reality of having eternal life? Do the realities of eternal life that we have so grip us and so supersede anything else in the here and now that we go all out and give of our resources that the Lord has given us and entrusted to us, do we go all out in obedience to His will in the light of this eternal reality of the reward to come? You see, if we do... What we're doing is we're taking hold of that which is life indeed. And, and how do we do that? By doing good, by being rich in good works, by being generous, by always being ready to share the wealth that God has entrusted to us. That's how. Simple. Folks, those believers who do that, who handle their wealth that God has entrusted, to them like that you can be assured on God's guarantee that their investment is solid they have advanced their investment for the glory of God now you folks I challenge myself and I ask you all what are we doing with the earthly treasure God has entrusted to us can I urge you invest it in God's kingdom for his glory. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for being so particular in your word. Well, Father, forgive us if we take so much for granted, even the wealth that you have entrusted to us, that wealth being small or being great, you have entrusted us to us and we will be held accountable how we handle it. And so we thank you that you give us instructions on how we can invest it for your glory and kingdom. You don't condemn it. You don't condemn those who have wealth. But Father, you instruct us of how we are to treat it and how we are to view it. At the same time, we're called to enjoy it. And so Father, we give thanks for your word of counsel and instruction on this very matter which is so relevant in our materialistic age and the day in which we live and so father part us with your blessing we pray keep us safe and protect us for your glory we ask these things in the name of our lord jesus